The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I am, of course, as always, your host, Jackson. And in today's episode, we're speaking to James Patton Rogers, all about his brand new book with Manchester University Press, Precision, A History of American Warfare. Now, this is an absolutely awesome book. It was fantastic to talk to James all about the history of the precision theory in American warfare and what that has done for the American military. Now, James is a special guest for me because he's also from Peterborough. So it was great to talk to another story, another author from Peterborough and get their viewpoint on their area of history. Now, if you enjoy this episode or any of the other content that we create here at History Jackson, please do consider heading to the Buy Me Coffee profile in the description below or subscribing to History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. Now, without further ado, I'll leave you with James. So hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. Today, we welcome historian and author James Patton Rogers to discuss his brand new book, Precision, A History of American Warfare. Now, I've, I've received my copy and I've absolutely enjoyed reading this one and learning so much from James. And this has been a podcast a long time in the making, so I'm really excited to welcome, welcome you, James. How are you doing? Yeah, great to be here. My first podcast with a fellow Peterborian and one that's recorded out of Peterborough. This, this is big times for Peterborough. This is this is era-defining, epoch-defining stuff, Jackson. No, I, 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 I love that point. I mean, I'll get the Peterborough Telegraph on it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you've, your book is about much more than Peterborough, uh, much more than this. I would say it's not at all about Peterborough, but no. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So I want to ask you then, what was the, the inspiration for, for writing Precision, the History of American Warfare? Gosh, yeah. Well, this takes us back around a decade now. I, I'm ashamed to say that this book has been a decade in the making because it, it makes me sound a little bit lazy. But I promise I was investigating. I was trying to find answers that connected this quite intricate 100-year history of how we got from the invention of a precision strategy in the first drones all the way through to this world we live in today where drones have proliferated at a record pace. I mean, 113 different nation states and at least 60 non-state actor groups, including the Houthis who are firing drones into the Red Sea at the moment. Well, this is the world of drone proliferation, something that we've coined as the second drone age. But back to your question, what got me interested in this? Well, it was it was all about the Obama administration. I was doing my, my PhD and my studies in and around this time, and there was this weird juxtaposition that didn't make sense. There was the Obama administration and the president himself who was saying that drones, these robotic, remote-controlled weapon systems that could be controlled from thousands of kilometers away, um, and we're talking, you know, six, 7,000 miles, controlled back in the continental United States at places like Crease Air Force Base around 70 miles outside of, uh, outside of Vegas, um, that these were part of a just war. 
a war waged proportionately. And simply put, the president would say that they saved lives, that they're moral and ethical weapons in line with just war theory, in line with international law, and in line with this, this idea of an American way of war. But then you had uh, human rights groups, people of conscience. I remember quotes from um, the, the late uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, Emeritus Archbishop of, of Cape Town, who would say that, that drones are akin to apartheid in the way that they devalue human life. And so I was like, well, how, how can we reconcile this? And what were the original ambitions behind trying to achieve precision in war, trying to be pinpoint precise in the targeting of one's enemy? And what were the origins of the technology? as well. Now, I thought that this would be a relatively simple task. I thought, you know, let's go back to the Gulf War, the revolution in military affairs from the 70s and the 80s. Maybe we go back to Vietnam, if I'm feeling daring. Maybe we go back to laser-guided missiles. Turns out I'm completely wrong in all of this. And I keep going further and further back over this 10-year journey, all the way back to around 1916 and 17, in the American experience at least, and the invention of the first drones. This is the aerial torpedo that was the Kettering bug, and the, the strategy that was being developed alongside it called industrial web theory, which became colloquially known during this period as precision bombing doctrine. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's where the book starts, all the way back in those final days of the First World War. I really like how that's a it's quite a personal journey linked to PhDs and, and other interests and, and, and how you've given quite a quite a nice summary of what precision warfare is but where it links to. Now you've also mentioned and your book is about America, but you've linked it to American warfare theories. And and one thing you mentioned at the beginning of your book is American exceptionalism. So what is American exceptionalism and how does it link to America's attitudes towards its military and war? Well, there's an, an American exceptionalism in kind of every facet of American politics and society, and it manifests in, in many different ways, right? But I guess you can take it back to, and I was, I was speaking to Tammy Davis Biddle about this very early on in the project. And she wrote a book about this earlier period in precision bombing uh, called Rhetoric and Reality, kind of trying to understand how precision bombing perhaps didn't work, but was said it was work rhetorically, um, and, and, you know, definitely go and, and read her book. But she explained it to me, me like this, you know, ever since um, the Americans stepped off the boat onto onto Plymouth Rock, it was meant to be a, a different place and a different country, it was meant to be different to the brutal old world of Britain and Germany, this was the new world. And when you look at kind of the pre-First World War period, what was the politics of the United States? Well, the 1823 Monroe Doctrine and the 1904 Roosevelt Corollary stated that the United States would stay out of the politics of that brutal old world. Instead, the United States would shore up its own geographical boundaries and borders. So you had these, you had a military that, you know, after the Civil War, and um, we're talking a generation after the Civil War by this point, was set up more as a, as a, as a small special forces policing force, um, bandit intervention force to, to get involved in what they call these, these banana wars. And they were involved in places like Cuba in 1905 and Nicaragua in 1909 and, and Haiti in, in 1915. These were shoring up American political interests and making sure the French, the Germans and the British weren't getting involved 
involved in American affairs in and around these areas. And to the north, you can also include kind of Greenland in that as well. And, you know, before that, the purchase of Alaska to make sure you're shoring up US borders and boundaries. And, you know, Wilson, President Woodrow Wilson was never meant to take the US into the First World War, but they do get entangled in this. And so you have this remobilization of a massive industrialized army that is the United States, something that just wasn't meant to happen. And this was a shock to the American people. And I think we forget just how many American casualties there were in the First World War. We're talking 300,000 plus. There were protests in the streets. There was discussion of a lost generation and calls for there never to be a war like that for the United States ever again, never to send America's best, young, brightest over to Europe to die on those bloody, muddy battlefields in those trenches. Now, interestingly, this public sentiment was picked up by politicians who realized that they had to react to this public sentiment if they ever wanted to stay in power or, of course, to rise up for power. It was also picked up by a group of fledgling air power thinkers. Now, now air power itself is stupidly early days here, as it was during the First World War. But there were those in the US Army Air Service, as it was at the time, people like Colonel Edgar S. Gorell and Brigadier General Billy Mitchell, who thought, well, maybe air power is the way to make sure that America never fights these wars again. And maybe air power is a way to instill some of these American values that are not in line with the, the British and the American ways that they're developing their war. And they're developing air power as well through area bombing, carpet bombing, morale bombing of the enemy, specifically targeting the civilian cities, those hubs, so that you can make the people turn against the politicians and, and make them stop um, waging the war they're waging. Perhaps America can do it in a, in a very different way. And so this is where they start to come up with this idea of industrial web theory. Now, the idea is, is if you can invent weapon systems, air power systems that can pinpoint precise target enemy war making infrastructure. So we're talking, I don't know, arms factories, munitions factories, you know, here places they make bullets and uh, places they make tanks. We're talking oil refineries, so you don't have the fuel to power your systems. We're talking um, rubber plants, so that you don't have tires. Uh, we're talking, of course, perhaps most famously, uh, ball bearing factories as well. Perhaps that was the most impactful during the Second World War. But if you can target those with pinpoint precision, and I quote from their documents at a time, and avoid the populace and their livelihoods, then you can wage a war where you can deny your enemy of their war-making capacity and their ability to fight on the battlefield. You can blunt their teeth. And so when you finally meet them on the battlefield, which inevitably you'll need to do because you can't win air power with air power alone, your enemy will be so weak that you won't have to dig into the ground to, to hide from the, the thousands of bullets coming towards you and the, and the artillery shells. Instead, you'll be able to walk through your enemy and onto victory at minimum cost to your military's lives. This is a way to, to not only reduce the cost to American military lives through high-tech innovations in precision systems, but it's also a way to reduce the cost to civilian lives of your enemy. Bringing warfare in line with this progressive idea of the United States and this progressive period that we had at the time. It's really interesting to see how America's attitudes of wanting to be different have not only affected its politics and its, its way of life, but also its, its military thinking. How does the technology then and the, the structures and the institutions around precision bomb evolve moving into World War II? Because there's a, there's a 
big gap between these two walls in terms of a period of technological advancement. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what happens is you have some attempts to create early drones. So there's there's a number of figures here that reappear through the book, a number of personalities and characters that, that, that really are the, the bedrock of the push. You know, personality matters and ideas matter when it comes to, to, to precision and to any strategy in war, and it's certainly the case in this. So one of these figures is, is Hap Arnold, Henry Hap Arnold. Now, Hap Arnold was a, a, a young officer in the U.S. Army Air Service. Uh, he was the second person to be taught to fly by the Wright brothers, uh, the second person in the US military to be taught to fly by the Wright brothers, and was somebody who came obsessed with this idea of using air power for precision uh, in line with this, this precision bombing doctrine. Now, he worked with some pioneers of, of industry and inventors, so Henry Ford, Charles Kettering, to create the Kettering bug. Now, this was an early drone, no doubt about it. It was set on rails. It was about the size of a small biplane. Uh, it had those two biplane wings. It was a, a piston motor with a rotor on the front. Uh, it would be set on rails. The rotor would be turned the amount of times that you wanted the, the, the propeller to spin, and thus it would set the amount of distance that the drone would fly. An early Sperry gyroscope would keep the, the, the drone level, uh, and then it would be set off as the crow flies towards its target. Its, its early range was around 100 kilometers. So let's say you're back from the battlefield, you wanted to take out an ammunitions dump, or, or maybe you're away from a city and you want to try and, and bomb a specific part of the war making industry maybe that's something that you can do with this weapon but their plan was as it progressed its range would increase right and its precision would increase so it would take off it would go straight as a crow flies towards the target the engine would stop once the propeller stopped it would release a chop from the wings the wings would fall off and it would swoop down on its prey like a falcon in theory in reality, it was worse than useless, and it was often the case that it would spin around in the sky, and it would come back down, and it would actually, in some cases, target those who had launched it. So, a little bit useless. But it kind of doesn't matter for our story, because it's the genesis of an ambition. This ambition to replace human frontline fighters in war with a, a robotic system with this with this drone and that's something that the united states has tried to fulfill as an ambition for you know well over 100 years now now when those systems those drone systems weren't working and they were kind of mothballed or you know the, the funding ran out they actually went with trying to create precision computer bombing sites that could go onto crude aircraft like your B-17s and your Liberators, and they would allow the bombardier to input certain data. So altitude, um, we're talking about wind speed, um, you know, where you are over the target, all these different variables are put into this early analog computer is the best way to describe it. And then again, in theory, once the bombardier had put all this information in, they could calculate exactly when to release the bomb, and it would you know, fly down, and they could get a bomb in a pickle barrel, they said, from 20,000, 30,000 feet. They can hit the mailbox on the corner. Um, and they invested so much money in making this work. I mean, I think it was about half as much as the Manhattan Project. And so we have Oppenheimer and films about, about this, uh, you know, the, the, the creation of the atomic bomb. But um, a lot of taxpayers' money was put into this Norden bombsite. And it did work during that interwar period and those, those tests. Um, you know, when you're flying over Ohio, 
Ohio or Alabama in blue sky conditions and you don't have the enemy firing at you, yeah, all right, it worked. Turns out it was pretty much worse and useless when it came to flying over Europe. Europe is a, a difficult place to, to fly at the best of times. If you think about the weathers, the currents, the, the clouds, um, and when you have to have visual bombing through the Norden bomb site, those clouds aren't ideal. Add to that the fact that you're being fired at, you know, anyone who's watched Masters of the Air recently will most certainly see the sort of conditions that, that these bombardiers had to had to try and launch these bombs with pinpoint precision under. Um, I don't think the series 100% goes into enough detail about that, but I would say that. I've just written a book on precision. Apart from that, I think John and the team have done a fantastic job. And of course, when you're being fired at, when you've got um, smoke screens over cities, when you've dropped bombs beforehand and the whole place is on fire and there's smoke firing up, you know, it, it's really difficult to, to try and make this work. And there were so many cases um, where they did try and adjust and adapt prison, precision bombing doctrine, precision strategies, um, and it just wouldn't work. There's a famous occasion where Churchill calls them in, calls Arnold and, and, and Spatz, another another officer in the, in the US Army Air Force by this point, calls them in and says, you know, what are you doing? Um, you're moving to things like daylight precision bombing to try and make this work. You're losing so many of your your crew and your planes. Um, and we can't see it's having a demonstrable effect on, on the war effort. Um, why not do what we're doing and, you know, bomb at night and area bomb? And they have a discussion and it ends up being the case that, you know, if the Americans want to keep bombing in the day, we'll keep bombing at the night. And you'll have this 24-hour pressure on, on the Germans. And the Americans are very clear. Arnold and Spatz and others are, are, are determined to make this work. And it's been a part of their mind, body and soul and their whole way of thinking for, you know, decades by this point. And this is their, their whole legacy that they're putting into action. Now, in the end, they just can't seem to make it work. And so as we move from Europe to the Pacific Theatre, uh, another officer at the time, uh, Haywood Hansel, who's another kind of pioneer of precision, um, a disciple of some of the uh, early air power thinkers, and very much in line with kind of Arnold and Spatz and others' way of thinking. Well, he tries one last attempt to make this work over Japan. There are reports that say on the final run, he finally perfects it. It makes it work. The Norden bombsite, everything they thought it could do, it happens. Um, but then he's removed from command. And General Curtis LeMay is brought in, someone who most certainly is not brought up the same way as all of these precision pioneers. I think he comes through as a reservist. Um, he isn't kind of from the Air Corps tactical school where all taught precision is a very different way of thinking about bombing. And to cut a long story short, he moves towards this more area bombing, morale bombing, carpet bombing idea. And that's where you move towards the fire bombing of Tokyo and so many other cities up until the atomic bombings. And the interesting thing here, uh, and perhaps a lesson or a caution for history, is that these weapons, uh, this, this analog computer, this Norden bomb site that was developed to drop these bombs with pinpoint precision um, for these moral, ethical, strategic reasons to avoid the populace and their livelihood, well, it's that that is used as the perfect device to help LeMay target cities and specific regions of cities so that you can maximize the destructive input of firebombing. And I should add there that the Norden bombsite was invented by Carl uh, Norden, who uh, a, de a devout Christian who wanted to try and, and um, minimize 
the uh, the costs and the impact of war. And actually, it ends up being the Norden bombsite that is used to launch the most technically and kinetically precise attack during the entirety of the Second World War, which you know is mind-blowing to think it's the bombing of Hiroshima, because it drops that bomb right by the Second Army HQ, Hiroshima Castle. Um, and of course, nothing about that attack is actually precision in terms of the doctrine. Um, you have, what are we looking at, 120,000 dead, uh, conservative estimates. Um, and uh, yeah, the rest is history. It seems to go against that the idea of, as you, as you just said, trying to minimise loss, but it also feeds into the idea of trying to reduce the amount of men that you're putting on the battlefield. But how does that that moment of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, how does the the entering into the atomic age change American thinking on, on war and, and precision bombing? Well, I think the conventional history states that it changes it massively, right? You have Colonel, uh, sorry, you have General Curtis LeMay, who maintains in positions of power and uh, American nuclear bombing strategy moves towards massive retaliation. Uh, but that skips a whole point of the history, right? Because if you go back to, nine, to late 1945, into 1946, 47, 48, 49, there's this moment in American history where President Truman is trying to implement international control. And so the idea here is that in order to stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons around the world, you have to bring them under international control within the United Nations. And there are people like Stillard and Einstein who are writing at the time, they, they write this, this in this edited book called One World or None. And they, they're literally arguing that we need to have one world united under the who are custodians of the atomic bomb, um, or there'll be no world at all. And there are many people who agree with this. Uh, Truman certainly thinks it's going to happen. Uh, when I was going through uh, the archives, I think it was in the, the Library of Congress, going through uh, the presidential archives, there's this letter he writes to, to his representative at discussions, Clark Eichelberger, and, and he says, you know, there will be, a, in essence, a kind of a, a, a peace in our time. This will, this will work. We're going to make this happen. Now, there's another person who wrote in that collective volume alongside Einstein and Stillard, and that is Cap Arnold who is, by this point, the, the head of an independent U.S. Air Force. So he's gone from being in a U.S. Army Air Service and, and taught to fly by the Wright brothers all the way through to now being you know, this, this head of the first head of the, the, the U.S. Air Force. And he says, yeah, I agree. You know, let's aim for a, a, a one world or none. Let's aim for international control. But in the meantime, I'm going to prepare for war because that's what militaries do, and that's the responsible thing for us to do. So the question here is, if Arnold's the person who's in control, how is it that his way of thinking about air power starts to influence early air power, early nuclear strategies, early bombing strategies around nuclear weapons in the US Air Force? Well, it turns out quite heavily, because towards the end of the war, Arnold and Spatz, Spatz particularly, who relayed it back to General Arnold, was able to interview Goering. And they, were, they asked him who was more successful in the bombing of Germany. You know, what was the, the key thing that led to the collapse of your industry? And 
Goering being questioned by an American officer, and we can decide whether or not um, there was duress or perhaps someone trying to, to save their life or say the things that the Americans wanted to hear, or perhaps he was he was right. Um, he said it was the American precision bombing. It put us under so much pressure that it collapsed our economy, and it was your industrial web theory that worked through and through. Now, there is some statistics in the, the US Strategic Bombing Survey that say that actually there were some points that were quite um, impactful. Some of the, the oil raids, um, like I mentioned, the ball bearing factories, some other stuff that really did impact the war effort. Um, although bombs on target percentage-wise was was still pretty pretty low. But this this reinvigorates Arnold and those around him around this idea of precision. It's almost inconceivable that you can think of, due to the failures of the Second World War, that anyone would entertain discussions around precision ever again. But they do, and so. Without the, the knowledge of Truman around this time, they start to create these early um, war plans around nuclear bombing and nuclear war. And so these are um, pincher, broiler, off-tackle, and they're based around the same idea as industrial web theory, this, this kind of intellectual idea of trying to hit specific war-making capacity of your enemy, be this the Soviet Union at the time, to blunt their ability to fire nuclear missiles and weapons at you, or to blunt their ability more around this time, because they didn't have nuclear weapons at this point, to blunt their ability to use their vast preponderance of human force, troops on the ground, to invade Western Europe. Um, and so these were the discussions, these are the things that took place, these are the, these are the things that were happening. Um, and what Arnold also did was he established, actually alongside LeMay, and this was something LeMay would regret, he established the RAND Corporation, one of America's first think tanks. RAND stood for, stood for research and development. It had departments on, on mathematics and engineering that would try and make this, this war plan possible, because it wasn't possible to achieve that level of precision at that point. So you've got engineers working on this, but you also had a social sciences division full of strategists and de defense intellectuals um, who would be this kind of counterweight to strategic thought happening in the US Air Force and be able to question them um, to make sure that it stayed in line with this kind of precision ethos, this precision idea. Now, all of this happens, uh, Arnold dies very abruptly, really, in 1950, 51, his memoirs are released. Um, and from this point, Arnold really, and of course, around this time, you've got the, the Soviet testing of, of nuclear weapons, you've got red scares, you've got, you know, Korean wars on the horizon, everything is kicking off by this point. And so Truman starts to abandon the idea that they're ever going to have international control. And they start having more of a concerted effort to make real war plans. And this is something that LeMay who is leader of Strategic Air Command, which is nothing in the, the kind of mid to late 40s, grows to be this behemoth in control of everything with the biggest budget you've ever seen in the US military. Well, he starts to take his lessons, his ideas from the Second World War and implementing them into American nuclear strategy. And it's at this point, after all of this early thought that you get moving towards a massive retaliation, especially under the Eisenhower years. So the idea that if the Soviets even, you know, have a scratch at trying to prepare their nuclear weapons, there's a kind of a, a trigger pretty much that the US can be prepared to, to send this giant spasmatic response, what one um, defense intellectual at Rand called a wargasm straight at the Soviet Union. Now, 
Those at RAND, and I can name some of them now, I mean, these are people like the historian from Yale, Bernard Brody, who was a, a naval historian who, when the atomic bomb went off, um, he turned to his wife, Fawn Brody, at breakfast, and he says, you know, everything I've done to this point in my career is pretty much useless. I need to turn to, to work on, on the atomic bomb because it's going to define an entire era. And so he's a historian who started to learn all the technical characteristics of the weapon system so that he could place it into its appropriate historical context and understand how it will impact the world. He was recruited to Rand. Uh, one of his protégés was William Kaufman. He's someone who came, who really pioneered trying to keep these precision ideas within nuclear strategy as a next generation thinker. Uh, people like Albert Wallstatter, Roberta Wallstatter, Alan Enthoven, Herman Kahn. All of these people are very famous defense intellectuals, many of which inspired all the characters in Dr. Strangelove um, and, and thought about all of these strange ways to win nuclear war. Um, you know, the difference between 100 million deaths and 300 million was a big thing for them at this point. And it was like a rational way of thinking about nuclear war, at least that's what they called it. Um, it's hard to think about any way you could win a nuclear war. Uh, but these were the debates that were happening at the time. Now, they took on LeMay and this um, this kind of massive retaliation way of thinking, much to their detriment. Um, they, were, they were cut off from... Um, secret briefings. They were cut off from their security clearance. Um, so remember, LeMay is a founder of this organization. It does come back to bite him because they're very critical of the way that he's thinking about nuclear war. Um, they think that if you go and launch these attacks against the Soviet Union, and this is your only rigid response, then you're creating a world where the Soviet Union will do the same to you, and you have this total guaranteed annihilation and the end of the world. There's one conversation between William Kaufman, this disciple of, of Bernard Brody, um, where he sits down with LeMay's number two, uh, General Power, and um, and they're discussing, and... Um, Power turns to turns to him and, and says, look, none of this matters what you're talking about in terms of keeping the nuclear war limited. If there's two of us and one of them, we win. And and Kaufman turns to him and says, well, you better hope it's it's a man and a woman. Um, because, you know, how are you going to reproduce and procreate the United States? Is that really victory? And that's the way that some in the military were thinking at this point. Now, what's fascinating here is you start to have, as you move towards the 1960s, the late 1950s, you have this major political change. Why? Well, Nixon is running against Kennedy. We know this history, but we forget how close that presidential fight was. So, so tight margins. Kennedy knows this. He knows that perhaps one of the areas he's weaker on is his defense posture, his strategy, um, his national security thinking. And so he creates a brain trust around himself. And he hires people from the Harvard defense program, people like Deirdre Henderson, who I've become very good friends with over the years now. And I was able to, to sit down and, and talk with her in, in her house. And, um, you know, she was sent by, by Kennedy she worked for him when he was a young senator and worked on his um, presidential campaign. He sent her over to the West Coast where Rand was based in Santa Monica and said, like, tap, tap up who I need to be part of my, my brain trust and, and what ideas I need to, to have victory over, over Nixon. And we're still connecting all of the dots on this, but I mention it in the book. One of the things that happens is because Rand have had their security clearance at the highest levels revoked, they're dealing with older intelligence. And one of the things they're worried about is this so-called missile gap. 
which is that the US doesn't have enough nuclear missiles compared to the Soviet Union, so we're behind in the race, and so we're vulnerable, right? Um, and I, I say we here as I, I sit in the continental United States in, in upstate New York. Um, and, and someone who's deeply <laughs> been researching this history for, for a decade. Um, and so what they do is they feed this back through the Kennedy administration. It becomes a major political point, a major point of the election campaign. And, and the Eisenhower administration can't really come out and say anything because it's top secret information. It turns out that the missile gap isn't, isn't really a thing anymore. But it's one of those things one contributing factor that helps Kennedy win the election. And so if Nixon had stayed, if Nixon had won and, and, and the, the Eisenhower kind of way of thinking has stayed in power, you probably would have had a continuation of, of massive retaliation and this big spasmatic response. But instead, Kennedy wins. And who does he bring in? He brings in to his administration all of those from the Rand Corporation that have been set up by, like I say, Arnold, who had been taught to fly by the Wright brothers and been pushing precision all the way through. Well, they now come in as this next generation into the Kennedy administration. Uh, William Kaufman is made an Undersecretary of Defense. Alan Enthoven, the same. Um, and what they do is they start to put their own way of thinking, what they call their rational way of thinking, into American nuclear strategy. Now, Kennedy at this point, he's briefed when he comes to power by, I think, General Lemnitzer about this, this very inflexible massive retaliation, and he's horrified. And so he sends his um, Secretary of Defense, uh, McNamara, off to go and, and think of new ways to think about this, to create what they called a flexible response and a set of options for the president. And so this is where they talk with the, the former RAND officials now, and they implement what they start to call counter-force. Now, LeMay's ideas were based on counter-value, the idea that you can, you know, in order to destroy something, you have to destroy everything. You, you counter the value of your enemy's cities, and you don't hold back on your destructive capacity. For, for Kaufman, this counter-force was about countering your enemy's forces, their force-making capacity. And so this is where they started to draw up ways in which you can target vital nodes within the enemy infrastructure, within their war-making capacity, and within their military forces, such as their silos, to blunt them and to have a limited response in the event of the outbreak of hostilities. And so it's here you start to get this refocusing on precision in the weirdest place, which is American nuclear strategy in the hottest days of the Cold War. It's fascinating to see how those debates have played out, not just those political debates happening in America are playing out, not just on the biggest arena, but also in the background in terms of their political or their military nuclear strategy. But then how Rand has played a pivotal uh, force and moment in, in bringing precision back. Now, I want to kind of zoom past uh, past Kennedy and past a couple of other presidents when we end up in the Gulf War because there's a new era for American warfare and a revolution, as you call it, a, a revolution in military affairs. So how did precision warfare remain relevant in this new age? Well, it's actually due to this political shift towards counterforce um, as, a, as a key point of, of PSYOP 63 at the time, which is you know, the strategic integrated operating plan in the event of, of, of nuclear war. Um, because of that, because you have this political decision, and war is political, we know this, you have to have this shift towards making different technologies, right? And, and they can't make all of this achievable at the time. And we can have another discussion about how this transitions to mutually assured destruction and all the other things that happen. And, and LeMay, he continues to fight all of this. But that's for another podcast, perhaps. Or, you know, 
read the book. Um, but we can move through and we can see how there's this technological legacy from this period. And it's the same thinkers that are developing this. So Albert Wallstatter, who I mentioned earlier, who his own disciples went on to work in the, in the Kennedy administration, he's pushing and pushing and pushing for not only precision in nuclear missiles, but in conventional missiles. And he comes up with this idea that they start to call discriminate deterrence by the late 1980s, where he foresees a world whether if the Soviet Union was to, to do anything, if Moscow was to make a decision to try and flex its muscles, well, the United States wouldn't even have to resort to nuclear weapons. They wouldn't have to reach that nuclear threshold and cross it because they've developed by this point, by the late 1980s, intercontinental precision missile technologies that allow them to strike pretty much anywhere in the world with a conventional explosive high yield missile, not a nuclear yield, a conventional yield. And it has enough power to breach and to destroy a Soviet silo. And so he comes up with this idea uh, with Freda Clay at this point in time, who's a Deputy Secretary of Defense, and they come up with this document called Discriminate Deterrence, and that's released in 1988. What happens then? Well, it's not going to be used against the Soviet Union at this point. You have the, all the bits of history we know and the end of the Cold War. But another war does rear its head, one that perhaps you wouldn't expect. And this is the first Gulf War. And so where are these conventional precision technologies and precision missiles used? Well, they're used in that conflict. Now, the interesting thing here, and it's... So you've got this kind of like policy trajectory, these ideas forcing their way through the American political system through history, and how that has an impact on the technologies that we develop. But there's also this strange occurrence where the person who's in charge of the air power strategy in the Gulf War, someone I've sat down with many times, Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, I was sat in his, his office in DC, actually. And um, we, we were sat there and we were talking about, you know, how he came up with uh, the plans for um, for effects-based bombing in, in the Gulf War. And he said, well, I was actually on holiday before um, the Gulf War. And I, was, I sat around, and I, was, I was reading some of the old books on air power strategy. And I was actually reading Hayward Hansel's books. This is a person who had been in charge of many precision bombing raids during the Second World War, and the one who made that final attempt in the Pacific, in the Pacific theater before being, um, being let go. Um, now, he was reading his book and all the things around precision bombing and all the things they tried to do and the morals and ethics and st strategy behind it. And he was like, well, I've got the weapons to do this now. So why don't we start to think about developing a, a war plan, a, a bombing plan that can integrate all of this. And so you have, I mean, it highlights the importance of a book, right? You have this jumping through history, these ideas that find their way um, also with, almost with kismet into the mind of the person who is developing the war plan in the Gulf. Um, and they, they prove incredibly successful. Is the Gulf War purely a precision bombing campaign? No. Uh, those, those sort of precision assets are useful to take out key command nodes of Saddam's forces. So he can't communicate with his commanders. His commanders can't communicate with the troops. And he becomes essentially blind and deaf on the battlefield. So it, it destroys that part of it, which is incredibly useful. Are there also the mass use of cluster bombs and napalm during this point? Yeah, 
of course there are, and we shouldn't neglect that part of the history. And of course, there's nothing precision about the infamous Highway of Death incident. But these weapons really started to cut their teeth during this period, and they start to make their impact known through the 1990s, and they start to get coupled with drone technologies that help provide the eyes and the coordinates to increase the precision of these missiles until you get to the 2000s and the two are combined. You have conventional precision missiles combined with the drone. And, uh, well, we know what happens next, I guess. Yeah, I think that's a really nice summary there of how history has played a role in creating new policies, but allowing current policies to, or old policies to actually be realized in the way they're intended. Uh, with the, we're taking Hansel's policies that he was trying to, pull in the Pacific uh, theatre, but also pulling those ideas of trying to get the least amount of troops out, hurt, uh, and deaths, but also trying to take away those key nodes. That was really nice. Absolutely. And what we've skipped across entirely there is the fact that the US military had to change its way of thinking about war after Vietnam. Um, my book focuses a lot on on nuclear strategy because that's where I find the thinkers that I focus on um, are discussing these ideas of precision. But you could write another book that just focuses on the legacies of, of Vietnam because that's another contributing factor uh, at this point. And uh, you know, Saddam has certainly made this calculation. He said that you know, yours is a nation that cannot sustain 10,000 dead in one battle, and this will be the mother of all battles. Because he'd looked at Vietnam and thought, I will make another Vietnam for the United States. What he hadn't figured is that revolution in military affairs and the effects of air power. It comes to show just how much strategic planning and military revolutions can have an effect on the military, American military as a whole. Now, I have a final fun question for you, James, after that fantastic summary of the history of precision and American warfare you are a keen sports fan um you've you've posted pictures of you wearing buffalo jerseys on your your instagram story um i know we've had conversations based on rugby so what has been your favorite sporting moment that you have watched oh my goodness um come on there's only one I'm sat in Market Deeping Rugby Club. I'm 13 years old. I've been playing rugby since I was six years old. And what does Johnny Wilkinson go and do? He only goes and slots it through the posts. And we win the World Cup. There's no, there's no greater sporting moment in my lifetime than that. I, I mean, I still get chills watching that one. So. And he did it with pinpoint precision, may I add, Jackson. <laughs> and so there you go. Maybe that's what set me off on the track to analyse precision. I think that's a good... But may I ask what position you played? I played anywhere they'd let me play. Um, <laughs> uh, I've played every position uh, during my career. Um, but my favourite, I think, was was number five. Stick me, in, stick me in second row, let me take that ball, and I'll try and score a try. <laughs> that's a different kind of precision in the line out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, off, after listening to you give us such a fantastic summary of precision and how it's evolved in the american warfare our readers are going to want to go away and grab our listeners not our readers our listeners are going to want to go away and grab a copy of your book where can they go and then how can they interact with you as well well what i'll say is you know we, we haven't even touched upon the current state of precision warfare in the world precision technologies and drones and the book does deal with this that's that's my area of, of speciality um i'm an advisor um to the united nations security council on the proliferation of drones globally uh, i'm currently the nato country director of the full spectrum drone warfare project and i work with in policy to understand how drones will provide 
offensive and defensive opportunities for NATO forces, but will also pose a massive risk into the future. So if you want to learn about what's happening with the Houthis in the Red Sea, you know, I've been out to the Middle East as one of only two academics who's given the opportunity to analyze these captured drones, um, you know, proliferation around the world more broadly, the use of first-person drones in Ukraine, uh, all of this sort of stuff is dealt with in the final chapter of the book, showing how this technology that was pioneered in 1916-17 has now spread around the world. This technology that was meant to be this panacea to the cost of the war on terror for Obama and now in the hands of terrorists and are targeting Western forces. You know, we should mention just last week or in the last couple of weeks, we've had the tragic death for the first time of US military personnel by hostile enemy drone strike. And I think that this is sadly the future of war. So if you want to read the book, you can buy it in all good bookshops. You can buy it directly from the publisher, Manchester University Press, and you can use the code WARFARE30 in order to get 30% off. So if you're in the UK, that makes it around 14 quid. If you're in the US, I think it's about 21 bucks. Um, you can buy it on Amazon uh, in all the usual places. And if you want to hear more about my research, the, the TV shows we do. And uh, I have a new podcast coming in the future as well. In the, Towards the end of this year, we're starting a new podcast. Well, then go and follow me on Instagram at James Rogers History um, or on Twitter at DR James Rogers. And I will make sure a description for the book is a link for this book is in the description below because it really does help contextualize some of those current events that you've just mentioned and help you understand drone warfare and what's going on even better than what you might be able to get off bbc news or sky news but also following you on uh, social media and reading those op-eds and those articles that you're sharing based on the current state of drone warfare has really helped uh, my particularly my understanding on what's going on in the middle east so i thoroughly recommend for you everyone to go and get a copy of james's book but also to follow james online because he will develop your knowledge and something that you you probably need to ha have an understanding of today so thank you very much for coming on, James. Thank you so much. So thank you very much for listening to this episode with James Patton Rogers about his book, Precision, A History of American Warfare. I thoroughly recommend you go and get a copy of this and interact with James's content because, it, like I said in the end of that, that podcast, it really does help contextualise some of the events of today and build an understanding for you to work off and, and look at learning about different areas of the world and their approaches to warfare and their attitudes towards the west now if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that we've created here at history of jackson or some of the social media contents of the blog content please do consider heading to the buy me a coffee profile in the link below or subscribing to history of jackson plus on apple podcasts next week we've got another amazing episode lined up and i really know that you're going to enjoy that 